0: Welcome to this Friday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, sitting in for Bill Nygett. We're wrapping up the first week of jury selection in the trial over the slaying of Ahmad Arbery down in Brunswick. Attorneys have spent the last four days questioning scores of potential jurors about their views on the case, guns, and racial justice in America. They're only a third of the way done, and there are major questions about how long it will take to find enough people who haven't already made up their minds, not to mention many questions about what the verdict will mean as the country continues to grapple with race, racism, and the role they play in its institutions. Here to unpack all of this with me is a really excellent panel, starting with my colleague Asia Simone Burns. She's a crime reporter at the AJC who's been on the ground in Brunswick covering the trial this week, and it's also her first appearance on Political Rewind. Welcome, Asia.
1: Hi, Tamar. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Next, we have Fred Smith, a constitutional law professor at Emory University. It's good to have you back again.
2: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And last but not least, we have Major Woodall. He's a public policy associate for the Southern Center for Human Rights, and he's the former state president of the Georgia NAACP. He's also working on a book about racism in the mind. Um, How's it going, Major?
3: All is well. Good to see you. Good to be back uh, with you all today.
0: Awesome. I'm so excited to dive right in with this panel. And I'd like to start with Asia, who spent the last week in Brunswick. Talk to us about what the scene has been like at the courthouse and in this nearby park where I guess the attorneys have been sifting through some 600 potential
1: jurors. Yes, yes. Well, uh, since we've been here, um, both what has been happening inside and outside of the courthouse has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, Inside, you have a prosecutor uh, and the defense attorneys um, trying to seat a panel of impartial jurors. And uh, there were a thousand jury summonses that were sent out. Uh, About 600 people have uh, actually arrived for uh, jury duty. Um, And for the past week, uh, they've been arriving for individual questioning uh, and for group questioning. And uh, some of the statements that they've made uh, have been uh, what I would say are surprising and rather telling. Um, And we can get into a little bit of that. But equally fascinating is outside of the courthouse, uh, there have been, as you would expect, demonstrators gathered for days uh, being very vocal about not only wanting justice for Maude, but wanting to draw attention to the racial dynamics that. Existed in Brunswick prior to Ahmad's death or prior to Mr. Arbery's death.
0: Yeah, and how unusual is this scene? Because a lot of this stuff, especially as they're they're vetting these potential jurors, isn't a lot of this happening outside, or are they being kind of brought in group by group? That's
1: pretty unusual. The jurors are being brought in group by group. Uh, they're reporting to the courthouse in groups of about twenty uh, for um, questioning from the prosecutor and from the defense attorneys. Um, meanwhile the demonstrators are stationed in a courtyard that is a few yards away from the courthouse, but still immediately in front of it. Uh, So as you have the jurors coming in and out of the courthouse and parking in a parking lot on the side of the building, um, there is this group that uh, is not meeting them, but is relatively nearby as uh, they're reporting for a jury. So uh, it's something that actually happened inside of the courthouse, uh, Yesterday, uh, an attorney defending Roddy Bryan, uh, attorney Kevin Goff, um, expressed some concerns about the group being there in the first place, uh, saying that um, the banners and the Justice for a mod T-shirts, uh, some of the signs that they were carrying, could potentially influence the jurors as they're coming in and out of the courthouse and essentially make it harder to seat an, an impartial jury uh, for this case um, and Since it's happening in a public square, uh, the court has made it uh, pretty evident that they don't uh, have any purview over uh, the demonstration that's happening, Um, since it is not something that's happening inside of the courthouse. uh, But that is something that came up and was expressed by the defense attorneys that that is a concern of theirs.
0: Major, I want to bring you into the conversation here, finding impartial jurors, will be such a struggle. And it has been for the last couple of days, given just how far and wide this cell phone video um, of Travis and Greg McMichael, um, you know, pursuing Ahmad Arbery and then shooting him at close range. It's, it's gone everywhere. And it's almost impossible to find people who aren't familiar with the case or don't have strong opinions about this. So weigh in on that.
3: Well, I think that goes to the failures of our legal process that a video that has for all intended purposes been a part of this evidence from the date from the very onset of this case whether from the very onset of the incident itself um that anybody who who had seen it would remain impartial because it's telling we had a district attorney jackie johnson who blocked the arrest of these individuals Travis and Gregory McMichael, and she believed that, you know, arrest wasn't warranted, that criminal accountability was not necessary. Then you go to George Barnhill, who is currently the district attorney in the Waycross Circuit, who pins a three-page, two-, three-page letter that goes into detail, great detail, as to why 17-4-60 well, what was 17 4 60, which was Georgia's uh, statute on citizens' arrest, justifies the the unauthorized use of deadly force in the murder of Ahmad Arbery, and I use the language murder very intentionally. And so when we see the legal standards that are being paraded around by system actors, official officers of the court, and they do not have any congruence with any real jurisprudence, any real expectations of accountability and quote-unquote law and order and then when you get to this point in the trial where or in the in the trial process where juries are, or jurors are being selected and folks are asked whether or not they've actually seen the video or if they have any ill feelings about either the defendant or any of the defendants and if this matter has moved them one way or another that is quite telling as to what kind of system, the legal system we have in this country.
0: Fred, what, if anything, um, can the judge and the attorneys do in a situation like this um, to kind of ensure a fair and a speedy trial?
2: Yeah. So, uh, what's happening right now um, is a process I call voir dire. Um, in different parts of the country, that's pronounced differently. And outside of the country, it's pronounced entirely differently. Um, but during that process, um, they're, uh, they're asking questions of large swaths of people. Um, some of them are, are very routine questions. Do you know anyone related specifically to this case? Um, and then uh, some of them are questions that are kind of more uh, specific to and tailored to these set of facts. Uh, including questions around uh, people's views, not only about race, uh, but also their uh, their views about guns, uh, questions about whether or not they own guns, uh, views about uh, gun control, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and then there's kind of the more individual questioning um, that, um, that Asia was just uh, talking about, right, uh, in terms of uh, their specific views about this case and whether or not they prejudged it. And perhaps that is, you know, outside of the questions like, are you related to someone in this case? Those are uh, some of the most important questions. Um, because some of these questions are designed to figure out whether or not someone can be removed for cause, right? So if someone um, tells the court, um, I can't be fair here, they're guilty. And no matter what I see, I conclude they're guilty. That's a basis for what they call a for cause challenge, where Um, Someone can make a motion and the judge can remove the person. Some of these other questions like do you own a gun, et cetera, those are designed for peremptory challenges where um, within the discretion of either the prosecution or within the discretion of the defense, they can categorically remove someone. As long as they're not removing them for race or sex or religion, and in some jurisdictions, not Georgia, sexual orientation, as long as they're not removing them for one of those reasons, um, then they... um, then they have entire discretion. The, the prosecution here um, has uh, 12 of those, uh, as I recall, and the defense in total has 24 of those. Um, uh, and so, uh, so, that's, so, that, so that's why you're hearing the types of questions that you're asking. Some of them are for cause and some of them are uh, for uh, peremptory challenges. And the idea in the end uh, is to uh, achieve uh, an impartial jury of one's peers, but as she's being alluded to, and I think we're about to discuss more, um, that's a particular challenge uh, in this case.
0: Asia, let's talk a little bit about this process where the, the prosecution and the defense can kind of strike down people and, you know, the the not fighting, but a little bit of scuffling in terms of the types of questions that that are being asked of potential jurors. How much fighting has there been at this point? And are there concerns, at least that the prosecution has raised,
1: that
0: the defense is trying to cut people because of their race, which is illegal?
1: At this point, we haven't seen that fighting that uh, the defense or prosecution are trying to cut people from their race. uh, But some of the questions that have been asked, um, have uh, been a a little bit heated and have been met uh, with uh, a lot of uh, different types of responses. Uh, I'll bring it back to the very first day of questioning. Um, The prospective jurors were asked if they had uh, any negative impressions about any of the three defendants. And several of them answered in the affirmative, some of them um, said that they had negative impressions of all three defendants. Some said that they've seen the case on social media, that uh, essentially that the information that they have about the case has been um, surrounding them on social media and in the news uh, to the point where they're sick of it. Um, One juror, juror number two, uh, even said that he said that he felt that all three were guilty and has shared a cell phone video, a cell phone video of the shooting um, and has, talked about the case with his brother. Um, So we're really seeing uh, that this is a case that a lot of the people that are being brought in are familiar with. Uh, And so some of these people are being struck for cause. Some of these people um, have been qualified. And going forward, it'll be really interesting to see who actually makes it onto this panel.
0: Major Brunswick is a pretty small city. It's only about 85,000 people. It's about 70% white, about 27% black. Um, and I I know that the decision has been made to intentionally keep the case in, um, in Brunswick, just because people know the McMichaels outside of all of this. Um, but I'm wondering... What you think should be done? Should this case be tried in Glynn County? There's been talk about whether it's even possible to to do that, given just how much this cell phone video has gone around, given how much this, you know, Arbery's death has resonated with the community.
3: Well, one, I'll clarify that that Brunswick is a predominantly African American community. Glynn County um, is the the exact opposite, and so when you think about where this murder took place, it was in Satilla Shores, which is an, in a in a, in an unincorporated part of Glenn County, and so when we think through the, the 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 duty to have an impartial jury of their peers, they're talking about Glenn Countyans, right? And so I think no matter where you go, there's going to be someone who has foreknowledge of what took place. But I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but from what I understand. It's not necessarily you know about a, a thing, but rather, are you ha- do you have the ability to be impartial? And so, if you can receive, you know, the evidence that is presented by the state and the defense, and you can make a very impartial de- determination as to whether or not uh, there has been an omission or a, a execution of guilt uh, in a matter, then then you should be able to be impaneled. Um, and and ultimately, that's what we're calling for. We're calling for due process. We're calling for the legal system to do what it claims it always does, and we've seen up until this point that that has not happened, and we're not going to rest until that process is is executed in the manner to which they always claim it's done and we're using taxpayer dollars for this, and so we need to ensure that that the legal system is 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 performing to the standards that we expect them to
0: Fred is the best case scenario here for, for the defense, maybe not that, that the jury can be impartial, but that they can be open-minded given what we've seen so far. And is it possible or at this point to really move the case out of Glidden County at this point, if that needs to happen?
2: All right. So I'm going to actually start with the second question because it'll help me uh, work my way back to the first, um, if I can remember. it. So, uh, so the, the second question in terms of uh, change of venue Um, So in Georgia, there is a change of venue statute in criminal cases, um, but it's the defendant um, who is able to make that motion. Um, And they're able to make that motion whenever uh, facts arise um, that lead, uh, that that, that form the basis for their evidence that it's impossible for a jury to be uh, impartial. So it's not necessarily too late um, because sometimes it's the actual voir dire process Um, that provides the evidence that uh, a jury cannot be impartial. The prosecution cannot move the case. Um, And part of that is because um, every criminal defendant has a a right to a jury of his or her peers. And so the defendant can waive that right and say, hey, I think I can only get a a, a fair trial um, by someone who's not my peer somewhere else. Um, But uh, the prosecution can't waive that right on the defendant's behalf. Um, I would be surprised in this circumstance um, if the defense did attempt to move the case. Um, And that's for a number of reasons. One is the reason that Major pointed out, um, which is that Glenn County, um, which is where the jury pool is being drawn from, um, is 70% white, but also because of some of the answers to the questions. So for example, um, for one of the panels when uh, the uh, defense attorney asked, um, have you ever uh, voted against someone because, uh, or sorry, have you ever voted for someone because they were in favor of gun control? No juror raised their hand. Not a single juror raised their hand. If this trial were in Cobb County or at Savannah or where have you, it's hard to imagine that particular result. So from the outset, um, uh, some of some of the political views that the defense seems to be getting at. Um, are more present in Glynn County than they would be uh, perhaps in some other places. Another reason why I'd be surprised um, is because uh, Glynn County has been so saturated um, with information about this particular case that there are lots of people who are willing to say, I know the facts very well in this case, and I, there's nothing you can show me that will cause me to change my mind. Um, and I'm not sure you would find as many such people even here in Atlanta, uh, I, I mean, here in Atlanta, yes, we saw the video a year and a half ago. We haven't seen it since. It's not something that has kind of permeated um, kind of our everyday culture and understanding of, uh, of our community in a way that it's happened there. And so if you're removing every juror who says, uh, no, I, I have prejudged this. I am pretty sure they're guilty. Then you may end up with an ultimate jury um, that, uh, that doesn't actually reflect the community. Um, and it's kind of skewed toward uh, being particularly sympathetic to the defendant. It's, it, I, I can analogize it to death penalty cases, where if you remove everyone who says, "I'm sorry, I can't, I can't condemn someone to death who's not an imminent threat to anyone," I just, I can't do it. Um, then uh, what, the, what 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 uh, the uh, experts uh, have demonstrated is that that results in juries that are more inclined to find someone guilty. And I think you might have sort of a, a version of that uh, emerging right now in glenn County, um, where um, a jury that's more likely to find the defendant not guilty um, than the overall pool in glenn County may be emerging.
0: Asia, we've talked a little bit about the scene outside of the, the courthouse this week. But as you walk around the the city of Brunswick, What's the mood that you're you're feeling right now? Not only not only are there locals, but there's also folks who've been bussed in from different parts of the country who feel so strongly about what happened to Ahmad Arbery that they wanted to be there. So, how are
1: those two groups
0: kind of interfacing with each other?
1: The it is a really interesting dynamic uh, between locals and between people that are being bused in. Um, on the second day of jury selection, uh, following a the lunch break, Marcus Arbery, Ahmaud Arbery's father, uh, accompanied a group um, the tr- from the Transformative Justice Coalition to Satilla Shores to visit the scene of this inciting incident. Uh, and while they were there, the people that were with the Transformative Justice Coalition, they filled three buses, busing people in from Philadelphia, from Florida, from all across the nation, in order to be here for this first week of, of judicial proceedings, um, and there was a very clear dynamic that emerged of people that have been in Brunswick and that are familiar with the Satilla Shores neighborhood, and people that came from out of state for this for this event for uh, these proceedings. The people that were visiting from out of state seemed almost surprised that Satilla Shores looks like any other neighborhood that maybe they've walked through in their own hometown or wherever they happen to live right now. And the people, the locals uh, that were in the area, they seemed completely unsurprised. They saw uh, this area as a place that has carried so much heartache and so much pain. And uh, it was very obvious uh, the difference uh, that these two groups of people were having as they were looking at this exact same thought.
0: Yeah. Well, let's take our first break. And when we come back, I want uh, Major to dive in and kind of put this case into context with a lot of the instances of, of violence that we've seen against uh, young black men. So this is Political Rewind. Stick with us. We'll be back in a minute. <laughs> We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. I'm joined today by Emory Law professor Fred Smith, Major Woodall of the Southern Center for Human Rights, and the AJC's Asia Simone Burns reporting on the ground from Brunswick. Let's jump back into this conversation. Um, Major, this is the first kind of major trial involving the slaying of a young black man since the the Derek Chauvin trial. obviously, chauvin was was convicted, and I think people saw some measure of justice, but there was also a question about whether America could make a lot of these systematic changes to to the way that our institutions deal with race, which I think for the most part haven't happened. And so I'm curious how you're looking at this trial in the context of what happened with Derek Chauvin. And um, what is the potential here um, for any kind of semblance of of justice?
3: Well, I'll say what I've said um, every time I ask this question, and I may be one who, one of the few who will say this, but there's no justice in criminal convictions. There's no justice in legal outcomes that put people behind bars. And the reason I say that is because currently right now we're seeing the Department of Corrections literally violate the very humanity of people who are, who are incarcerated as we speak. And so that's not justice. What's justice is being able to create a society in which these things do not happen. What's justice is that when these things do happen, we have systems in place and resources and services that can help rehabilitate people to re-enter society, but that's not happening. And so while we are here in this moment and we have this criminal trial that's pending and we'll see whether or not there's conviction or an acquittal, that's not justice. It's just not. And I find tension because I want there to be some closure because that's what a lot of people are looking for, for this family. They're looking for closure. They're looking for the, the powers that be to say that this is not okay. Cause may we be reminded that, that before the GBI got involved and arrested the McMichaels and eventually Brian uh, 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 as well, this case was sitting on the shelf. The DA, the second DA was literally about to let this case go unprosecuted. If it was not for the persistence of Ahmad's mother, that's not justice. And in, 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 in Georgia's legal process should not work in a way in which it requires social and political and public pressure for them to hold people accountable. That shouldn't happen that way.
0: Fred?
2: Yeah. I mean, what Major is touching on in some respects um, is this tension um, that emerges um, for, for a lot of folks who are seeking criminal justice reform, um, are seeking a world in which uh, we move away from uh, mass incarceration uh, and placing people um, into conditions where they're facing human rights abuses every day. Um, And there are these moments uh, in which uh, there are questions around, well, will these defendants receive the same, uh, be placed into the same system as everyone else, right? Because that's what equality is, right? So you have this tension between um, equality and equal dignity and everyone being treated the same way, um, and the fact that the same way um, is uh, a, a world in which there are so many um, human rights abuses, in which we do um, incarcerate more people per capita than, than any um, uh, democracy on, on the Earth. So so I just want to uh, point out that, that, that really important uh, tension. Um, in terms of whether or not there can be justice, uh, I won't opine on that. I mean, I think uh, it's impossible to say it better than Major just said it. Um, but uh, but I will use the phrase that he used a little bit earlier: criminal accountability. Can there be some measure of accountability here? Um, and accountability. Um, is important for a number of reasons. Uh, one is uh, from a deterrence standpoint. Uh, accountability is important. Uh, accountability is also important because it's a moment for the judicial system to declare um, uh, equal dignity, um, and that's important to the family here. That's important also to um, the broader community, um, and and it goes to this um, this phrase that sometimes calls procedural justice or procedural fairness um, that and which has been broken so much already in this case. Um, but when people perceive that a system is uh, unjust uh, or unfair, they become more and more disconnected from their government. Um, they don't just feel like second class citizens. They feel disconnected, like they're not a part of this democracy at all. Right. And that's a major problem um, for a democratic republic to have entire of swaths of the community who feel more and more disconnected from their government such that they don't feel like it's theirs right and so um that's why accountability in these moments among other reasons that's why um it's so important right? and in this case where it did take so long and, and and if the video had not come to light that there hadn't been so much organizing um then it's not clear that this prosecution would be happening um the district attorney uh, the original district attorney in this case is being charged and it's become, even though I said earlier that it's focused on Glynn County, it has become, in some respects, this interesting uh, and unusual statewide event. The judge uh, in this case is from Chatham County in Savannah. The prosecutor in this case is from Cobb County, uh, and so, um, and, and so, it's it's a it's it's already sort of a really unusual set of facts. Um, and uh, so, yes, on but what criminal accountability might mean. Is some measure of uh, procedural justice and procedural fairness.
0: Major?
3: Yes, I just want to lift up very, very briefly the difference, because Fred, he mentioned this, and I, I don't want the audience to, to, to miss sight of what he just said, that Jackie Johnson was indicted for a violation of oath of office, which is a a, a felony, if I recall correctly, that is punishable by no more than, I think, it's like a year in prison versus and plus and or a fine. What the, the folks in Brunswick was calling for was an indictment on malfeasance while in office, which are two totally different charges. And when we talk about, and everybody celebrated the legacy that this, this leads us to if, if Jackie Johnson is indicted, but she was literally slapped on the wrist. And we've seen a historical legacy of white politicians who do these kinds of things and are not held accountable and are charged with violations of the oath of office and are never actually held accountable at all. And so I just wanted to lift that up because she has not been held accountable. And we saw literally the same week a D.A. in Columbus, who just so happens to be a Democrat, be charged with several felonies. And so notwithstanding not what he was charged with and what the situations and circumstances surrounding his indictment uh, included, I didn't want that to be lifted up, that sh- she has not been held accountable, and, and I'm not going to uh, let her off the hook for that.
0: I want to bring Asia back into the conversation, but before we do, I did want to ask you, Major, um, you know, we talk about Jackie Johnson, the the Glynn County D.A. She did lose her spot in in the election um, uh, last November, which is pretty rare for for D.A.'s. Isn't that some teensy weensy measure of accountability?
3: Yes and no. So the people of Brunswick, that's what democracy allows is for us to be able to get rid of prosecutors or elected officials who do not do their jobs of upholding the Constitution against enemies, both foreign and domestic. And it took tooth and nail, but she was defeated, and the people of Brunswick celebrated, and so did we. But the reality is, she can still she can still uh, uh, practice law in this state. Uh, George Barnhill is still prosecuting cases, or lack thereof, in Waycross Judicial Circuit, and so. What we're calling for, I know what the Justice Georgia Coalition called for, and when I was president, the NAACP called for, was both of them to be disbarred. Because what they did was they violated the the professional rules, I mean the rules of professional conduct, and they cannot be trusted to to ever practice law here in this state again because they, they simply showed that they were incapable of doing so.
0: Asia, we've talked a lot about this cell phone video of, of the McMichaels and, and that Roddy Bryan shot of, of them pursuing Ahmad Arbery. Um, and I want to talk about the role of this video in the trial. Um, the attorneys have been asking prospective jurors how many times they've seen this video. And I think there is an interesting parallel with what happened with Derek Chauvin and, and George Floyd, because that was also a situation where there was a video that, once it got leaked out, really galvanized the public and got them involved in this case. Um, how much is video kind of going to change the game in this trial, and and do you have an understanding yet of how the prosecution is going
1: to be using that video? Well, the video is already um, really uh, influencing uh, what will be happening in this trial. Uh, the conversation uh, with the prospective jurors has been, "Have you seen this video?" Uh, really trying to get down to the root of what they felt about seeing the video. Um, some of the responses have been um, that the people viewing it feel that it's obvious that this was a murder. Some of the responses have been that it was very clear based on what happened between Ahmaud Arbery and Travis, where uh, uh, Travis and Michael, where Ahmaud ran for the gun, that uh, Travis and Michael fired at him in self-defense. Um, and one uh, juror that said something that really spoke to me uh, was that a- an equally important uh, factor in all this to her was why the reason uh, why the video was taken in the first place. Uh, she actually uh, went as far as to call it vicious and disgusting that uh, Roddy Bryan filmed the video because, by what she believes, the purpose of him filming that video uh, was not. Uh, for us to be able to see what happened, but that she's got to exist because that is what it's allowing for us to know what happened and for there to be some sort of evidence of the exchange that happened uh, in Satilla Shores. Um, so it's, it's already influencing. It's not uh, entirely clear what the prosecution wants to do with it, uh, but what has been uh, more and more evident is that uh, the moments. Um, The final moments of Ahmaud Arbery's life, that is something that was captured on video, and that is something that the prosecution um, wants people to see, wants them to see that Ahmaud Arbery was in a situation that he felt that he couldn't get out of. Mm Mm-hmm. And Major,
0: how do you think the the kind of proliferation of video, how is that changing activism when it comes to racial justice issues? Does it make it, of course, Arbery is not the only young black man who's gotten killed at the hands of, of white people who don't believe they should be in a place. But how does that change activism? Does it make it easier as, as kind of an organizer yourself to um, kind of bring the public on board?
3: Again, I might be uh, unpopular in my position on this question, but it doesn't. What it does is the people who have to speak to these families, right? When, when, when the video was released to the public, the family of Mon Arby hadn't seen it not once. I remember getting a call saying the family's freaking out because they had been calling for transparency in the investigation for months. It adds to the trauma of seeing black bodies. I don't even call them black people because literally their bodies, their corpses, is draining in the streets. And there was an investigation done by uh, court TV, and it showed the actual body of Ahmad Arby laying in the street where officers of the, of the law, as well as EMS officials were literally standing over his body, just standing. He was still breathing. And to see that over and over and over again, yeah it really highlights the urgency of the work that is being done right now, because truth be told, yeah, it, it may help us get more justice. But the reality is that that is a human being who is laying right there. And for so many of us who are consuming this kind of feed over and over again, at some point, it literally will cause a crisis of consciousness that requires us to go to therapy and go through all kinds of intense healing practices because the reality, again, is that is a human being right there, we've desensitized it so much that it requires of us to see a dead corpse lying in the street, blood draining our gutters and our sewers to be able to say, well, there he goes. Now we have to do something because there's no way this could happen here. This is not who we are. This is not what we do. But yes, it is. We've seen the historic legacy of systemic racism play out in the streets. It was in the streets and on the corners of of cities and towns where black bodies were literally hanging from poplar trees. Strange fruit, as the song goes. So I would caution us whether it's important for us to celebrate the proliferation of seeing black bodies literally hang in the balance that is not justice it is not right it is not necessary and it will continue to add to the entire uh uh, racial terror that we're continuing to fight against
0: fred how does how do these videos change the way that the legal system deals with cases like this
2: well, I mean, it's obviously it furnished evidence on one hand. On the other hand, it's creating um, difficulties in finding uh, an impartial jury today. Um, you know, I when it comes to um, more, more broadly, though, right, beyond, I mean, I think that clearly having a video will make it the prosecution's burden here is to prove um, beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Um, to sort of prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and uh, video evidence. Um, will uh, unquestionably help that. Um, but, but there's kind of two layers to the question, right? One is, how is it going to play out in this trial? But then there's the the broader question about how is this playing out in the mind of the public? Um, and I'll say, I mean, uh, bodies, burial sites, and photographs um, of, of dead bodies have a particular place um, in our culture, um, and, and and sort of at this just very like visceral human level, right? I mean, when you're when you're in a uh, a graveyard, right? As a kid, you know, and your parent says, "Don't you know? Don't don't step on that, right?" Um, laws against desecrating a site, and when it comes to photographs, um, you know, historically there have been photographs that have been used to terrorize, right? Photographs of uh, hanging bodies. Um, there uh, there have been people who sometimes have been charged with abusive corpse uh, uh, um like soldiers uh, who have, you know take, have taken pictures um, of uh, individuals after they have killed them and then there's also been moments throughout American history that we've celebrated um, the release of photographs um like the uh the mother of emmett Till uh, and um, and that was uh, kind of this. It had a very different resonance. So, so photographs in particular have this very different place, where sometimes the release of them um, is kind of celebrated as a, a moment uh, that is uh, that is exposing unimaginable brutality and brutishness, and exposing in a very well weighted system. And other times, um, it's uh, it's it's a moment uh, not to celebrate um, at all. Um, and so I think in these moments, in some ways, when photographs are released, it's, interest, it's It's important to think about well, what distinguishes one from the other. One thing that distinguishes one from the other is that in the Emmett Till case, it was the mother, it was a family member who chose to do that, right? Um, as opposed to here, where the where the mother didn't know about it at all, right? So that's one um, that's one distinction, um, and and then the other is just in terms of its uh, its necessity, and it's you know, I mean, if it's It does seem like maybe it was necessary for this video to be released for this criminal accountability that ultimately happened, but that should not have been so, because the people who uh, had it were in a position to make this decision um, without traumatizing the rest of us.
0: We're going to have to take our final break in a minute, but before we do, I want to send one more question Major's way. I think I know the answer, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Fred brought up Emmett Till and his mother releasing this photograph of him, and it, it did become a turning point in kind of the national consciousness when it came to, to race. And I've heard activists talk about how maybe this Arbery case can be kind of an Emmett Till moment for the country. I'm curious if you agree with that statement.
3: I don't. And re- reason why is because Emm- Emmett Till's murderers were not held accountable to generations later. I probably, I think if I recall correctly, it was posthumously after they passed away. And the lady who cried or or the, or the woman rather who cried and said that he had raped her, she wasn't held accountable either, even after these photos were released. there was no accountability, right The system did not work, and we're still fighting these 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 failures these deficiencies these these hangups uh generations later. this is four hundred years, and we're still having the same conversations of whether or not we are are making progress. I mean, the people. I mean, you see the guy who's who's right behind me, John Lewis. He got beat on Selma's bridge, and we're still fighting the right to vote. Right in October of 2021, we're still fighting for the right to vote. And so, though we make these very important strides in history, and and we celebrate them as progress, it seems as though the American pattern is we take three, four, five steps back every time we take one step forward. And if that is the human condition, if that is the pattern of human existence, then we have a long way to go.
0: All right, we have to get to our final break. Stick around, and we'll be right back with more Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, standing in for Bill Nygut. Our panel today is Major Woodall from the Southern Center for Human Rights, Fred Smith of Emory University, and my AJC colleague, Asia Simone Burns. I'd like to spend the last 10 or so minutes of the show talking about policy a little bit. Um, Asia, one of the main defenses that we're hearing from the the lawyer for the, the McMichaels is that they were just exercising, you know, their right under what was the law of the land at the time in Georgia, um, the citizens arrest law. Of course, that's since been overhauled by the state legislature. But talk a little bit about how they're they're using this defense and kind of their strategy here.
1: Well, essentially, what they're saying about uh, the citizens arrest law that was existing uh, at the time of this incident um, that resulted in Maude Arbery's death is that they had prior knowledge that there were break-ins going on in the Sotilla Shores neighborhood. They believed that Ahmad Arbery was the person who was committing these break-ins, uh, that because they suspected that he uh, had been committing a felony and that he was in the neighborhood that day to commit a felony. Um, they wanted to pursue him, detain him and talk to him and figure out, Hey, what are you doing here? Uh, are you doing these break-ins and um, detain him until police arrive? Um, the prosecution uh, in this case uh, has really been, um, well, she's pushed back against that a lot. Linda Donikofsky has. Uh, i saying that um, in order to uh, justify a citizen's arrest, there has to be a felony that was committed. And in this case, there's no evidence that Ahmad Arbery took anything from the home that he was in in the Stillshore neighborhood. There's no evidence that he had been a part of the break-ins. That and there's uh, no evidence at all that he had actually been committing a felony. Uh, and so, to say that um, they were committing a citizen's arrest that day, uh, that that's what they were trying to do, uh, there's nothing to back that up.
0: Fred, of course, since Arbery's death, um, the state you know, state legislators have gone in and and overhauled the citizens uh, arrest statute. How straightforward is the law when it comes to looking at criminal activity and kind of what used to be the law, but what has since
2: changed? Yeah, so uh, under the United States Constitution, uh, ex post facto laws are unconstitutional. So you can't hold someone criminally liable for something that wasn't criminally liable at the time of the conduct, right? So um, if today we have this show and tomorrow the state legislature passed a law that said nobody can uh, be on political rewind anymore. Um, well, I mean, we would obviously sue, but in but in the interim, um we also just we wouldn't be able to be held accountable for something that wasn't illegal at the time that we did it, right? And so uh, so these particular defendants are going to get um, the benefit of this law, even though um this law, um, has subsequently um, uh, been eradicated. Um, and, you know, I'll just say on a personal note, thank goodness it has. I mean, even just, I mean, the idea, uh, like when you, as you were recounting this, you could, in my own mind, I was thinking, well, um, you know, well, why couldn't Ahmad then detain them because they were in the middle of the illegal activity of detaining him? I mean, it's, uh, and, um, and, and the idea that, um, that they thought that that was their, Role and they thought that that was their place does um, kind of really touch into this historical vein that goes back uh, into centuries uh, in terms of um, of, of uh, it, it's very racialized um, this idea that, um, that that they were in a position to detain um, this uh, this other person because they suspected they they not being law enforcement suspected that they were breaking the law.
0: Major, I want to talk about what you think is possible politically in the state legislature in terms of change as a result of what happened to Ahmad Arbery. Of course, since his death, um, the legislature passed a hate crime statute. They overhauled the citizens arrest over uh, or sorry, the citizens arrest law. Um, do you think anything else is politically possible at this point?
3: Most definitely, I think you know when we look at, and again, I say this not as someone who's an attorney because I am not, but as someone who's a policy professional, is that at really what's at the center of this case is not self. I mean, uh, is is not citizens' arrest because we see that the statutory obligations that that were uh, invoked were not met, right? And so uh, that isn't necessarily part of this case. If if a defense attorney wants to lift up self-defense or stands the ground in the in the use of excessive force and deadly force. Uh, in the use of of self-defense that follows the stands of ground doctrines of self-defense, then maybe you'll, you'll, you'll see that come out. Um, It's also showing up in many ways throughout the state, because we have pending cases like the one that's in Statesboro, Bullock County right now, that's talking through this self-defense claim of, you know, do you have a duty to retreat? I believe that that's going to be something that we see uh, moving forward. Uh, when, When the, when, when the, When the -the stands-of-ground doctrine was, well, when the council doctrine was expanded to include uh, stands-of-ground, because stands-of-ground is is a separate part of the council doctrine. It is not something that is inherently included within that doctrine. Um, What we found was that uh, Georgia and states like Georgia, Florida, and et cetera, they wanted to ensure that folks could be equally aggressive, equally, uh, uh, they, they could equally use force, whether daily or otherwise, that would really neutralize any threat. And so when you have cases in which people are the primary aggressors, there's case law that suggests that there are certain things you must do. And so I think the General Assembly will take that up, or if they do not, they, it would behoove them to, because you're having cases now where folks are engaged in private interactions between citizens and even law enforcement now, right? There's a case in, in Washington County, uh, your Lee Martin's death, that that's lifting up how that interaction between the public and profit exists, but primarily around these private citizens engaging in uses of force that ends up in one person dying and the other person literally claiming self-defense. So I, I, I foresee that that being something that uh, it comes out of not only the Mod case, but the Martin, uh, Marcus Wilson case in Statesboro, the Yearly Martin case in Washington County, and so many others.
0: Mm-hmm. But you don't see the legislature truly changing the way that it approaches gun rights and, and that sort of thing. This would just be tinkering with what stand your ground means.
3: Well, I, I don't think this is a you know, some people will talk about the, the gun rights and those kind of things. And, and that's important. And I think that there's a time and a place for that. But I think as it relates to these issues, it it really just exceeds just black versus white. Right. It really talks through. Can we live in a state where people can protect and defend themselves without fear that they would now be criminally liable for something that took place, that that they didn't put themselves in that situation, but they had to respond nevertheless. And so I think it is a concern that Republicans and Democrats alike should have because it impacts all of us. Right. It impacts all of us.
0: And mm-hmm. Asia, um, We are not doing jury selection today down in Brunswick. Uh, It sounds like one of the the lawyers in this case had a personal obligation. But what's on deck for for next week and what are you expecting to play out?
1: Uh, Next week, the jury selection process will continue. Uh, The judge has said that they're going to get started again 830 on Monday morning. Um, At this point, there have been 23 prospective jurors qualified and they're trying to get to 64. Uh, At the rate that they're going, it could take off next week. Potentially, it could stretch into the following week. Uh, It really depends on uh, if it continues at the pace that it's currently going or if they pick up the pace a little bit.
0: And Fred, what are you looking for in, in the weeks ahead
2: yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm looking for how are the peremptory challenges, or to use more legally, how how are the various challenges uh, used? Who gets removed? What does the, the ultimate jury look like? How much does that reflect um, the uh, the general population uh, in Quinn uh, County? Um, whether or not the prosecution um, uh, says that uh, that there have been um, discriminatory uses of it. Those uh, those are some of the things I'm looking for. Um, And again, I don't expect there to be a change of venue uh, motion as there was, say, 20 years ago when uh, when the sheriff of DeKalb County uh, was was killed and that murder was was tried in Albany. I don't expect anything of that sort. But, you know, but uh, but I guess it's something to be on the lookout for. Um, And, you know, I think in every sense we're going to across the state and across the nation and to some extent across the world, we're going to all be watching this very closely.
0: Major, you got about two minutes left. Uh, what are you looking for in the, the weeks ahead?
3: I'm simply looking for humanity. I'm looking for um, a, a community of support for our families there in Brunswick, Georgia. I'm looking for uh, the collective society at large to be able to come together and really have honest and open debate about the issues that plague our, our people in our state to this day. And ultimately, you know, accountability. Um, to be able to say that we live in a place where the kinds of murders, the kinds of vicious acts that happened to a model on February 28th of 2020 doesn't happen again. Um, and unfortunately it may, it probably will, it's already has. But, but we can move the needle a little bit towards that, that ideal space called justice.
0: All right, Major gets the last word. That's all the time we have for Political Rewind today. I'd like to thank our guest, Asia Simone Burns, in her first time on the show, Fred Smith from Emory, Major Woodall. Uh, Bill Nygut will be back on Monday, and I'd like to take a moment at the end of the show here to congratulate him on being inducted today to the Georgia Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame, much deserved after such a long and storied career. I want to thank GPB's Sam Bernimous-Dawes and Jesse Neiswanger for their work. I'm Tamar Hallerman. Thank you for joining us and have a great rest of your day.